This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Jeffrey Epstein and Whitey Bulger, and you probably know something about their deaths. They both died while they were supposed to be in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons. They were in federal prison, and in my view, both of those deaths, I've talked about both of them a great deal, totally preventable, totally preventable. But the more than 300 individuals who died preventable deaths in prisons over the past seven years did not make the news, but they mattered just the same. And the Bureau of Prisons, which I think if you look at results, has got to be one of the worst run federal agencies, and that's saying a lot, one of the worst run federal agencies there is, they have a suicide problem. Over an eight-year period, 344 inmates in federal prison died from suicide, homicide, or accidents. That's according to a report released on Thursday by the Justice Department's Inspector General. The Watchdogs report comes in the wake of several high-profile deaths, including the two that I just mentioned. But those deaths, as terrible as it was that they occurred, I mean, again, these are bad people. I don't know how many people are shedding tears for Whitey Bulger or uh, or Mr. Uh, Mr. Epstein. But Jeffrey Epstein's premature death really kept his victims from getting justice. And as far as Whitey Bulger goes, at 89 years old, he was not sentenced to die. He wasn't sentenced to be executed. He was sentenced to serve the rest of his time in prison. And there's no telling what we might have learned about his criminal misdeeds and the nature of the FBI assisting him with some of those criminal misdeeds if he had been allowed to live. But the positive thing about those deaths is that they put a spotlight on the failures and the challenges, quite frankly, within the Federal Bureau of Prison, which is a sprawling system that currently houses 155,000 inmates across more than 100 facilities. And what this report shows is numerous operational and managerial deficiencies which create unsafe conditions prior to and at the time of these deaths. So the report examines four categories of non-medical deaths. If someone dies of cancer, that's not included here. They looked at deaths between 2014 and 2021, suicide, homicide, accident, and unknown factors when there's not enough information to definitively determine the cause of death. Of the 344 inmate deaths, the internal watchdog found over that time period, more than half of them, 187, were suicides. Next most common, homicides. 89 people were murdered, 56 were accidents, and 12 unknown. The most common cause of death, hanging, hanging. 
followed by drug overdose and blunt force trauma. Um, This is atrocious. And, you know, there's not a lot of votes to be gained by standing up for the rights of people in prison. So you don't really hear any politicians focus on this. And I guess because no politicians focus on this, very few media outlets focus on this. This is critically important. And I know there's this mentality on the part of some people to think, oh, people are in prison. They probably did something to get there. Who cares about them? Well, I care, number one. These are human beings. These are people. Their sentence is not to die being murdered with a blunt object. Their sentence is to be incarcerated and then go back into society. And the fact that hundreds of people aren't making it through the federal prison system, that says something really wrong about the federal prison system. And this, in my view, is a clarion call for a top-to-bottom reform, reimagining, re-whatever of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. It needs a total reawakening, kind of like what New York City dealt with when Bernard Carrick was first the Deputy Corrections Commissioner and then ultimately the Corrections Commissioner. The statistics of the decrease in uh, in violence, the statistics in the decrease in slashings, the statistics when it comes to the decrease in people attempting to smuggle in contraband, uh, even something as simple as overtime. I mean, you had the worst of all situations in New York City where we were paying more and we were getting less. And yet Carrick, and it's not just Carrick, there's a lot of other good people that were involved in that renaissance uh, in the uh, mid to late 90s. In New York City, but the leadership team that Carrick put together really showed that you could reform the system. That's what we need at a federal level. Some sort of Carrick-like entity who can actually bring leadership to an organization that is totally and completely dysfunctional. And this report says that there were several chronic system-wide challenges that were a factor in a lot of these inmate deaths. The BOP is continuing to grapple with a staffing shortage, which has a ripple effect across all the agency's institutions. It forces guards to work overtime, which leads to exhaustion, and obviously it negatively affects security. It also means that healthcare workers, including those that focus on mental health, often get pulled from their regular jobs to work shifts as guards. And that translates into what? Less mental health care for inmates and more suicides. So as these BOP facilities continue to struggle to keep their facilities free of drugs and contraband weapons, that's a big problem too because those contraband drugs and weapons contribute to one in three of these inmate deaths. Also, and this will come as no surprise to you whether you've been in prison or not, there is a tremendous problem with a lack of security cameras. You don't think these inmates know that these security cameras either aren't present or aren't working? You bet they do. And I guarantee you that's why some of these homicides are taking place. So I am glad to see this report, but I'm also sad to see this report because it shows how woefully – 
inadequate. The Federal Bureau, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is in terms of responding to the needs of taxpayers, inmates and their families and law enforcement, by the way. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Two items that I want to help you with. These these are going to be the two most important items you hear about today. Two important pieces of advice backed up by, I don't know, science, I guess. Tony, did you ever get your phone wet, fall in a pool, fall in an ocean, something happened where you got your mobile phone wet? No, I never. Haven't. No, God bless you. Lucky you, uh, Matt Blaze. And that ever happened to you? Absolutely. Fell, uh, fell in a pool. Same thing happened to me one time. Uh, did your phone survive? It did not. It didn't. I don't think mine did either. This it, is like I don't know, like twelve years ago or something. Uh, like that. I, that mine was around the same time. I think mine was oh six oh seven. What did you do once your phone fell in the pool and got wet? Put it in rice. That is the standard operating procedure. That's the conventional wisdom. However, it is completely inaccurate. You ready for this? Listen and listen good. If your phone gets wet, it is not actually smart to put it in a bag of rice. That is not me telling you that. It's Apple, the beloved, sainted company founded by that oracle of Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs. Apple warned its customers, don't do that. This rice trick, which I heard as well, and it did not work for me when I fell in a pool, is a persistent urban myth. And it works on the basis that rice is water absorbent and will suck the moisture from your dampened phone. In 2015... The newspaper The Verge, or the uh, the online news outlet The Verge, I should say, uh, traced the idea back to mid-20th century methods of protecting camera equipment in tropical locations. But there's less evidence that it works on smartphones. Apple said in a recent support document that the trick could actually do more harm than good. It could actually allow small particles of rice to damage your iPhone. So the company recommends instead unplugging your phone, tapping it gently, and letting it air dry. Uh, Flagship, which is a publication of Semaphore, suggests using your untouched rice in a burrito as nature intended. So they're having a little bit of fun there. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Here's the other piece of helpful advice. How do you get your way? If you want something from someone else, what should you do? Use the word because. 50%, that is the number. That is how much more persuasive you'll be If you use the word because when making a request, that is according to Jonah Berger, a marketing professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Apparently, an old Harvard University study demonstrated this by having people ask to cut in line at a Xerox machine. It didn't matter if people gave a valid reason for skipping ahead or if they simply said it was because... They needed to make copies. 
people were still 50% more likely to comply. So if you want something from somebody, say because. What I would like you to do is subscribe to our podcast because the more podcast listens we get, the better it looks for me. All you have to do is uh, search The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app. Hit the subscribe button. I would like you to set your smart speaker or your electronic device to stream this radio program, even if you happen to be asleep, because it'll make me look better internally and I I'll, won't get in trouble with my bosses if we have good streaming numbers, even if you happen to be sleeping. So that's that. Going to get to your calls in a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up. I'm very excited about this. Chris Newby is going to be here. Chris Newby is an award-winning science writer at Stanford University. And she's written a book called Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. There have been rumors, there's been speculation for literally years now that Lyme disease, which obviously comes from ticks, may have been developed as a biological weapon. So we're going to get into this with uh, with Chris Newby in a moment or maybe about 10 minutes. I'm looking forward to the conversation. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Mike is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. How are you, Frank? So, Frank, FOB, who's in charge of FOB? Well, currently, I mean, ultimately, it's um, someone – it's the Biden administration – but uh, the the current director is Colette Peters, and they're they're hoping that she can make some reform. She just started last year, but um, it looks like she's got a ways to go. Well, what what I see on uh, these YouTube videos is horrendous, horrendous. What's going on in Georgia, Alabama? It is horrendous. And right now, I know somebody who's locked up in Rikers. Uh, who, who answers to this clown mayor about uh, with the prisons? Is that is uh, one of his sidekicks? Or? Well, that's well, that's New York City Corrections, and uh, that's actually a jail at Rikers. So the current New York City Corrections commissioner she just started is Linnell McGinley Liddy, uh, who just started uh, oh, three months ago. So I don't know. Um, I don't know much yeah, about I'm, her. I'm I'm, I'm really uh, pumped up about her. Uh, credentials yeah well we'll but, see what uh we'll see what they produce in terms of results yeah if any. well if it's with the, the biden with the biden and adams gang i really ain't seeing much all right mike but, well uh, let's hope you're wrong right i mean it's easy to be cynical it's easy to throw in the towel i think the challenging thing is even when there are leaders that you might not support you might not have voted for the trick is demanding more because i think the easy thing to do and I see this all the time in society, is throw your hands up in the air and say, oh, the mayor's a jerk. So rather than work to fix something in your neighborhood, you resign yourself to the fact that it's never going to be fixed because the mayor's a jerk. Or, oh, the president's a jerk. Nothing's ever going to happen. Nothing's ever going to get fixed. Let me just give up and go on living my life. That is such a defeatist attitude, and it's a strategy that will not result in any progress being made across the board. 
If you don't like the mayor, if you don't like a governor, if you don't like your congressman, if you don't like the, the, the president, who cares? You should still demand improvements in various aspects of, you know, life and society, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222. Steve is in California. Hello, Steve. Hi, Frank. You mentioned Whitey Bulger and Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I want to tie this into the Navalny case and the Julian Assange case. How both Biden and Putin are are two different hands in the same glove. Uh, Whitey Bulger was an FBI informant, and Jeffrey Epstein had all kinds of presidents and government people on his list of pedophiles. So they were a threat to the government. Of course, the government whacked both of them. Now, with Julian Assange, the week after Putin kills Navalny, we've got our president doing the same thing with Julian Assange. And I found out the hard way when Obama and Biden twice tried to kill me in high-speed traffic accidents for exposing who killed John Lennon. So you really can't trust any anything to do with the government. Well, Steve, I'm glad you survived. That's all I can say. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Larry is in the Queens. Hi, Larry. Hey, how's it going? All right. My comment is, I'm just speaking for the New York uh, situation jails. Uh, I don't know if they're federal, the ones that aren't federal. But if they could come up with all that money for hotels and credit cards for the illegal migrants, they could fix the jail, the local jail problems in a week and say, you know what, we need money for this, not instead, but first priority. I, I, Larry, you're not going to get an argument from me. I I agree with you. I think, um, I mean, look, there's a lot of problems at Rikers when it comes to mismanagement. We've looked into them uh, before, and uh, I think uh, I think you're exactly right. I have no I have no issue at all with what you just said, and uh, it's frustrating where a lot of uh, a lot of New York's priorities seem to be these days. Neil on Staten Island, what's on your mind? Yeah, Frank, you know, I was thinking I'd like to take you. Little Carmine and Rachel out to White Castle because I think Little Carmine would enjoy it. Well, he might. He, you know, he might. I don't know that he's ever tried a, a White Castle uh, hamburger, so you know, we'd be up for it. Uh, I, um, you know, it might be the appropriate size for him because you know he he eats smaller sandwiches, and from what I remember about those White Castle burgers, they, um, you know, he might he might like that. So yeah, sure, we'll 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 give it a shot, Neil. Thank you. I'm not that much of a I'm not a chain restaurant person, but you know, if he wants to try one, I guess it should be part of his child rearing experience. Why not? All right. Lyme disease, is this a result of a biological weapon? We'll get into it with Chris Newby straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. If you've ever had Lyme disease, if you have ever known anyone with Lyme disease, you know what a tricky disease this is. It's very rare in terms of being a disease that attacks this many different parts of your nervous system. It can oftentimes remain a mystery to doctors who try to diagnose this. And there's been speculation in recent years that maybe, just maybe, this Lyme disease developed as the result of some sort of biological weapon. Someone that has been pushing that um, effort to find whether that's true or not has been Congressman Chris Smith, who has repeatedly, and sometimes it's even been passed by the House, pushed for funding to explore this question. Here's Congressman Chris Smith on the floor of the House exploring or talking about why we need to explore whether or not Lyme disease is the result of something man-made. Mr. Speaker, last year I was joined by my friend and colleague Colin Peterson of Minnesota to offer an amendment to the national to NDAA to task the Pentagon IG to probe whether ticks were ever weaponized with Lyme disease or any other dangerous pathogen. Our legislation passed the House but died in the Senate. Was told that the IG did not have sufficient capacity or bandwidth uh, to investigate. So tonight, the new Smith-Peterson amendment instead tasks the GAO with that job. For years, Mr. Speaker, books and articles have been written credibly asserting that significant research at Fort Detrick in Plum Island and elsewhere was conducted to turn ticks into bioweapons. In her book, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons, Chris Newby includes interviews with Dr. Willie Berkdorfer, the researcher who was credited with discovering Lyme disease. Turns out that Dr. Bergdorfer was a bioweapons specialist. The interviews, combined with access to Dr. Berkdorfer's files, reveals that he and other bioweapons specialists stuffed ticks with pathogens in a quest to cause disability, disease, and death. Mr. Speaker, with Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases exploding in the United States, an estimated 300,000 to 427,000 cases, new cases each year, and 10 to 20 percent of those people with chronic Lyme, Americans have a right to know whether or not any of this is true. There are a lot of questions that we ask in the amendment, but the most important question of all, can any of the information that might be gleaned from the GAO study help current-day researchers find a way to mitigate and hopefully cure Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases? I found Congressman Smith's uh, presentation there very compelling for exactly the reasons he stated. It's not everybody that gets their work read into the congressional record and praised on the floor of the House of Representatives and actually succeeds as being the person that's responsible for getting the House, if not the Senate, to pass a major piece of legislation. It's not everybody, but it is the person who's kind enough to join me this morning. Very happy to welcome Chris Newby, an award-winning science writer at Stanford University, senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary Under Our Skin, and the author of the book Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Chris, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for the invite, Frank. I appreciate it. That was a great clip, and it sort of changed my life. 
oh, when I, it I can, happened. I can imagine. When did your interest in studying this subject, either Lyme disease or biological weapons, I'm not sure which came first, when did your interest in either or both of those subjects develop? 2002, 20 years ago, it's how time flies. Uh, it was when my husband and I and our two middle school boys went on a beach vacation to Martha's uh, Vineyard in uh, Massachusetts. And then we went back to California. And a, a week later, my husband and I were sicker than we'd ever been before. And that was uh, the beginning of my interest in my favorite disease, Lyme disease and tick diseases. Uh, but we got super sick and it took a year, uh, 10 doctors and $60,000 to get diagnosed. And at the end of it, I said, what, what is going on here? I mean, once you dig into it on the internet, not necessarily on the CDC website, you realize the disease is different, um, is serious and different. So uh, from there, I went and did a documentary under our skin about Lyme disease and the deeper I got into it, the more suspicious it is. And then um, the, the next step was writing Bitten uh, when I got some key information that indicated um, the, this crazy tick-borne diseases that showed up in the late 60s uh, may have had a, a bioweapons origin. Wow. Uh, before we get into your research and your conclusions, what do we know about the official history of Lyme disease? When did Lyme disease first appear, and what's sort of the official history? So Willie Bergdorfer, who was a Swiss scientist who came over to, to um, Public Health Service, or NIH now, uh, in 1951, uh, he was the discoverer, and in 80, well, 1968 was when people really they started noticing people were getting sick, and the official story is that all of the disease, w which really sort of blossomed in the 70s and has never stopped, um, was caused by a little bacterium called, it's a corkscrew-shaped bacterium called Lyme disease, or officially Borrelia burgdorferi, named after the scientists who discovered it. And they said that was it. That was, and it was easy to cure with two weeks of doxycycline or amoxicillin antibiotics. And that was the official story. But the controversy has grown ever since then because it seems to be a very virulent disease uh, and a chronic form exists, but the government has denied it. Um, so that was that's the official story. And then as I got deeper, that changed. When was the first time that there was someone putting out the theory that this was the result of a biological weapon? Well, um, Michael Carroll, who was uh, from New York City, wrote a book called Lab 257. And he was the first one that said, well, um, Plum Island was the U.S. Um, biological Weapons Research Center for um, anti-animal, um, for killing animals for bioweapons reasons. And so he published a book, uh, and it was pretty good, but it, it really didn't nail it as far as the evidence. And then my book came out maybe about 10 years later, and it went a little further. Because it, it really, I had a lot of eyewitnesses, including Willie, who discovered Lyme disease, that said, oh, sorry, I didn't tell 100% truth about the discovery. There were other organisms when I was researching uh, the, the Lyme outbreak and 
one of them, I think, is a, bio, a biological weapon. And wow. then he said, uh, oh, by the way, I was with the bioweapons program for over a decade. I helped turn fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes into weapons of war. Wow. <laughs> and it was fairly shocking. Oh, yeah, I, I would say so. Beyond that admission, which obviously I think is pretty significant, what um, what is the evidence that suggests that Lyme disease m- would have been born from a, an experimentation with biological weapons? Well, I never got the hard proof that the actual organism was a bioweapon. It's sort of a fussy germ to grow in mass quantities and... Um, it's hard to culture outside of a living thing. But there were other tick-borne diseases that were weaponized, and, and the main one was um, a, a rickettsial bacterium very close to Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which um, is the most deadly tick-borne disease in the U.S. And the advantage to weaponizing that is that you could mass produce it in vast quantities in stainless steel tanks in the same way you might ferment beer and then they would take the organisms and freeze dry them and turn them into particles and um, that was one of several germs that they would uh, they were planning to spray in large quantities over um, cities of our enemies in a as a way to weaken the enemy so that we can go in with ground troops later on um, they also tried this is the day the government tried uh, had a go-to flea that they weaponized. They they tried to stuff it with diseases, and it was a very aggressive kind of tick that wasn't native to, for example, the Long Island and New York area. And that was called Lone Star Tick. And they had open-air experiments where they released hundreds of thousands of them on um, the Atlantic Bird Flyway in coastal Virginia. And soon after they st- stopped or started those experiments, the Long Island ticks became established. I mean, the ticks, Lone Star ticks became established on Long Island, and that's in the 70s. Uh, the way it came about was in the 70s. There was an outbreak of Rocky Mountain spotted fever because these Lone Star ticks carry that, unlike the deer ticks, the black-legged ticks. So is Rocky Mountain spotted fever that comes from these uh, Lone Star ticks, do you think there's a possibility that was also the result of some sort of uh, biological weaponization? Um, I don't have 100% proof, that, but that's the timing of these um, tick releases and uh, seem to make that evident. I mean, no scientist has come out and published that, but... I have a lot of documentation that recommended spotted viewers weaponize the releases of the Lone Star ticks. And they made them radioactive so they could trace how far they creeped and crawled over the months and, and the years. And then uh, another really shocking thing was I talked to a witness who dropped infected ticks on the Cubans during the Cold War, 1962, uh, as a way to harm Fidel Castro's sugar crop because they dropped them on sugarcane workers. Mm. And Cuba's pretty close to the U.S., so I'm sure some of them made their way here. So your your belief is that this was a result of governmental experimentation to try to weaponize these ticks, which led to Lyme disease and potentially some of these other tick-borne illnesses. Yeah, and, you know, we have this 
very bad epidemic of tick-borne diseases now with a half, it's now a half a million cases per year that's about 1300 a day by average the CDC just published last week stats that said tick-borne diseases went up 70% over the last 2 years before 2002 so it's a bad epidemic um and at at the time in during the cold war the military was stuffing fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with deadly diseases for bioweapons. And in the tick program, which pretty much ran for most of the 1950s, there were a lot of open-air experiments. And my premise, um, based on witness testimony from the guy who discovered the disease and his doc, his lab notes, his documents, archives, are that some of this tick-borne disease epidemic was caused by the the experiments, some irresponsible leaks, and uh, now we're suffering the consequences Absolutely. because, yeah, it's hard to control living organisms. No, no doubt about it. The, the um, if people just shame, we're talking with uh, Chris Newby. She is an award-winning science writer at Stanford, producer of the Lyme disease documentary Under Our Skin, and author of the book Bitten, the secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons. I would think if our government's experimentation with trying to weaponize ticks resulted in so many Americans getting seriously ill over the years, that this would be a big priority for exactly the reasons that Chris Smith stated in that uh, in that clip. Why has the Senate not joined the House in passing this legislation? What's the possible rationale in not wanting to find out the truth about this? Well, I I think it's like any military uh, program that went wrong. For example, the Nevada nuclear test. Well, there's been a lot of damage to our own citizens from the nuclear fallout from those thousands of tests uh, from the people in New Mexico and Utah and Nevada. Um, it's just embarrassing. Also, I think there are there were probably some uh, there are probably more overseas um, bug-borne weapons that were released, and they don't want that out because that would be pretty much a crime against humanity. <laughs> but it's, it's been up before the con- Congress this expose or the um, declassification of these experiments three times and it's been killed all three times despite Christmas best effort. Yeah. Are, are you hoping that if we are able to find out conclusively that this was the result of uh, biological weaponization experiments, that this results in better treatment for people like you and your husband who contract Lyme disease? Um, Yes, because whenever you develop, whenever the military developed biological weapons, they would also develop antidotes for our own soldiers. So it would be interesting to see like what germs were released in what areas. For example, there's another hot spot for Lyme disease and related tick-borne diseases um, are in, in and around Wisconsin and the Great Lakes. Like, what was released where? And then what um, cures and vaccines were developed for those germs back in the 50s and 60s? Hmm. So transparency will help um, save research dollars and save lives. What do we know about America's history with biological weapons? Well, the bioweapon program during the Cold War for the U.S. ran from 
the 50s through the 60s in 1968, Nixon canceled the program, took a couple years to ramp it down. It, but um, with some of those organisms, they're probably in the labs in Fort Detrick still. So they, the programs could be ramped, out, but ramped up. But officially, the bioweapons program for the U.S. is frozen. Uh, other countries uh, have ignored treaties, and like, for example, Russia, and still develop those bioweapons. What else are people going to learn in Bitten, the secret history of Lyme disease and biological weapons? I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting story of uh, creepy doctors, strange love, biological weapons uh, <laughs> experiments. And it centers around Willie Bergdorfer, who came over and joined the program and shows the escalation of the program and, you know, just the wacky experiments. For example, they would do experiments in the Utah desert where they dropped hundreds of thousands of fleas uh, as an experiment of the bioweapons. And the fleas were not infected with plague, but that was the plan. Put plague, plague in fleas and drop them on the enemy. And uh, they dropped uh, infected, mos- or not uninfected mosquitoes to see how far they would spread in poor uh, rural areas of Georgia. And then they would have like military people pretend like they're public health and ask people, oh, did you have a lot of... Um, bites from mosquitoes. And these are the mosquitoes that they're Egypti mosquitoes originally from Egypt and they spread Zika and dengue and a lot of tropical malaria, a lot of tropical diseases. So uh, just so many shocking experiments and creepy, interesting, I would say. Stranger things. The, The scientific consensus, as I understand it, supports a natural origin of Lyme disease. What do you, when you present this evidence, including these interviews that you've done with people who were there at the time that this might have been developed, what are the critics of the bioweapon theory say to you, and how do they greet your research? Um, it, it does, on the surface, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true that these experiments happen. And on my website, there are a lot of documents that, that you can read that show that. But the you know one argument is that well uh, there was an ice man discovered in the Alps in Europe and he had Lyme disease well that's that's not true at all that's just spin because they sequenced part of a bacterium only sixty percent of it and it wasn't Lyme disease it could be from that family of bacteria but that's not true uh, and yeah there's just a lot of people who are in the medist The military industrial uh, payroll who say it wasn't weaponized. The other thing is, since the book came out, a lot of scientists are sequencing the actual DNA of Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme bacterium, and they're finding it's a pretty unusual genome. People, the scientists say, well, it's a mysterious, rapid evolution. Uh, There are a lot of bits of viruses in that. And and that's really the way they weaponized germs back in the 50s and 60s. You would mix a bacteria with a virus inside a tick and see if you could brew a more virulent germ. And it would seem like the easy way to prove that you're wrong 
is to just declassify all the relevant information about this and let people draw their own conclusions. And one wonders why that uh, that hasn't happened. I, I could uh, detect more than a, a note of cynicism when you were discussing the information that the CDC puts out there regarding Lyme disease. Obviously, assuming your theory has not been officially adopted, I don't think they could put that out there. But what is the CDC putting out there about Lyme disease that you consider to be either inaccurate or at least incomplete? I think they have a very narrow definition of the disease. It's a disease that attack, that in its later stages can attack every organ and Patients end up going from specialist to specialist and being diagnosed and told eventually that they're just crazy because they sound like hypochondriacs because there's so many crazy, freaky symptoms. So um, they don't have an accurate symptom list. Uh, My colleagues and I have tried to get them to update it, but it's very, it's opaque and Byzantine. They they won't update it. And then also they say, um, Just until recently, they said chronic Lyme doesn't exist. And then they say it can be cured with, with, you know, two to four weeks of antibiotics. And that's not true either, because once someone has been undiagnosed for years and years, it it just takes a lot of time, a lot of antibiotics to get over it. Um, There are some herbal remedies, but in the beginning, I think a big dose of multiple antibiotics Helps, And then also there's a complicating factor that the, a tick bite can transmit multiple diseases. And sometimes you get what I call the tick fun pack and you have to use different drugs to target the different germs that it's that it, the ticks transmit. I don't want to get you involved in another controversy, but people would be irked at me if I didn't ask you about this. COVID is another disease that seemingly came out of nowhere that seemed to have kind of mysterious origins. A lot of people point to the proximity to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and some people said that COVID may be, have been developed in a lab, possibly even as a biological weapon. I'm sure you've thought about this over the last four years, Chris, do you have any theory as to whether that's the case, whether COVID may have been, may have come as the result of experimentation on a biological weapon? I haven't done the deep dive on that, but the people that follow Lyme disease uh, on my social media feeds, they also have been presenting <clears throat> evidence that is very strong that it could have leaked out of the Wuhan lab. I mean, we did this bat, sorry, bat virus uh, gain of function work in North Carolina, and then it appears that it was moved offshore to Wuhan. Uh, evidence is still emerging, but it doesn't look good. The, the thing that my research in the Cold War has reinforced is that after World War II, the CDC was created as a sentry against biological weapons attacks. And so they, their very DNA is, um, their nature is keep things secret. And I, I think we saw that unroll with the, the COVID outbreak and Lyme. And I think the ways that our public health system broke with Lyme disease was the same way that it broke with, with COVID. It's, it's a large bureaucratic organization, uh, which 
tends to secrecy and the communications mm-hmm. were sort of botched in, in both diseases. Chris Newby, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the time this morning. I appreciate your great work on this. Hopefully we'll talk again. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, I just, I would say if you get bitten by a tick, put it in a baggie with a damp piece of paper towel and send it in to see what's in it. Cause uh, that's the fastest way to get uh, to figure out if you were infected. <laughs> I think that's uh, I think that's very sound advice. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with, uh, with Chris Newby, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. I, 800-848-9222. I've known a lot of people with Lyme disease over the years, and each of them describes almost a nightmare scenario just to get diagnosed, let alone to find the proper course of treatment. We'll get into it in a moment with you. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. If you love to travel, Capital One has a rewards credit card that's perfect for you. With Venture X, earn unlimited double miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges where you just check in and chill out. Open up a world of possibilities with Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Lounge access is subject to change. See CapitalOne.com for details. When Jane cooks with award-winning Goya Garbanzos, she transforms her vegetable soup into a wholesome experience because they're perfectly plump. And so big. My friend Sam is here. Plus, Goya chickpeas are so nutritious. Wow, Henry's here too. I can't believe how much the kids love my vegetable soup. Goya garbanzos are so good, everyone will want to eat at your table. Find them in the Goya section of your local grocery store. If it's Goya, it has to be good. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. No, I had to remix this thing right here. Flow Rider, congrats, boy. You done got yourself one. <laughs> I'm tired of Groundhog. It's always showing love. E-Class, what it is, what it ain't. Come on. Let's go. Apple bottom jeans, boots with the fur. The whole club is looking at her. minutes till the top of the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is Flo Rida. And this song is responsible for some of the funniest scenes in the movie Tropic Thunder, which in and of itself is a very funny movie, which I highly recommend. Uh, and this is also a birthday bumper music request from Dana Markey, who's celebrating her birthday today. Dana is 
really an old friend of my favorite second cousin, Andrea, but she is also someone that I used to buy custom-made clothing from, but uh, that was long ago before all of my money went to things like childcare and, you know, commuting. So uh, I have not bought any custom-made clothing in a while, but if you're ever in the market for some, Dana certainly um, – I think she's still in that business. I haven't seen her in a while. Uh, but uh, she is somebody that is a good person to talk to about that. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, Carmine, my son, yet last night – I guess talking about it was good luck. For the first night in a while – he slept through the whole night, did not wake up. So hopefully that is the beginning of a new streak and not an exception that proved the rules, uh, that proves the rule. He was very funny. You know, we were out there uh, having a snowball fight on Saturday. We had a snowstorm in our area and I was shoveling and we ended up building a snowman. And I went out there with a ski mask on, you know, one of those masks that covers your full face. And I went out there to... Uh, participate in the snowball fight that my wife and my son were having with the neighbors across the street. And I guess because he couldn't see my face, my son started crying and he got scared. He thought I was, you know, a bad guy or something. And then uh, my wife tells me, oh, you know, show him it's you. Show him it's you. Show him your face. So I show him it's me. He smiles. And then I put the mask back on and he cries again. He did not like that. Uh, that ski mask. But um, he was a very good boy. We went for a haircut on Saturday morning. He was very well behaved. Very happy to get the lollipop towards the end. My wife was not thrilled with the haircut. She felt the barber could have done a better job layering. I love it. I think it looks very good. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Lewis is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Lewis. Hey, Frank. Uh, uh, great program, uh, as always. Thank uh, you. My dad was a logger, okay, in northern Pennsylvania here, and, and we, we have, we're inundated with ticks. And even in spite of our hard winters, uh, when I was a kid, we never had them. And uh, they, the migratory route, I think, brought them up from, uh, from what I hear from, from Cuba. <clears throat> and it was all different type of diseases. I have a sister-in-law she she's had chronic Lyme for 25 years and it's it's awful. Ugh, my ugh. dad my dad had arthritis so bad that the doctors said that they thought that was the worst case they'd ever seen. Oof, I I don't envy uh, your your family issues with that, Lewis. That's very tough. Thanks for sharing that. Hey, uh, those of you that are holding, I'll try and get to you after the top of the hour. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. Until next hour, keep asking questions. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.